0: Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Neuro Rounds. This is round 24. Um, today we'll be discussing obsessive-compulsive disorder and a couple related disorders. Um, last week, y'all really seemed to enjoy having Um, some cases, so there'll be a few of those as well. Okay, so to begin our discussion on obsessive compulsive disorder, um, obviously it involves obsessions. Obsessions are recurrent, persistent ideas, thoughts, images, or impulses that are intrusive, senseless, excessive, or absurd. Um, The themes frequently include contamination, Um, aggression, harm avoidance, distasteful or excessive sexual ideas, religious concerns, orderliness, and perfectionism. There are some studies looking at the incidence or frequency of obsessions. And the most common, of course, is contamination, uh, followed by pathological doubt, somatic issues, um, symmetry and aggression, followed by sexual Um, Also, um, there are hoarding and unacceptable urges at the bottom as well. But the most common one is um, contamination. Compulsions are the other side of this. Um, Compulsions are repetitive, seemingly uh, purposeful behaviors or mental acts performed according to some uh, rigid rules or rituals. Um, These acts are designed to prevent some kind of future feared events, um, but they're not realistically connected to the event or are excessive. Um, And they also carry a sense of compulsion and bring no pleasure. So they don't want to do these things. They feel like they have to do these things. So they go around, touch all the lights or something like that. Um, They also did in the study uh, look at the most frequent compulsions. Uh, The most frequent one is checking, followed by um, uh, cleaning or washing, counting, uh, symmetry um, as well. So again, checking is... Uh, the most stereotypical and the most frequent compulsion. Um, Everyone knows the most famous, um, not real, but um, obsessive compulsive detective, Mr. Monk. Uh, So that kind of gives you the idea of what obsessive compulsive is. It affects one to 2% of the population. Its prevalence is similar for men than women. Uh, Onset usually occurs during adolescence and early adulthood. Yeah, onset is earlier in males than women. It is a chronic condition uh, with periods of waxing and waning in the uh, severity of their symptoms. Uh, The person who has OCD is aware that their obsessions and compulsions are excessive or unreasonable. They just can't control the urges. Um, And these obsessions and compulsions must be severe, time-consuming, taking up at least more than one hour a day. Um, They cause marked distress uh, or interfere with their normal routine. Um, their work, social activities, and relationships. There are several um, related or comorbid disorders. So trichotillomania is um, hair pulling. So those OCD will sometimes have this and it's usually triggered by a stressful event. Um, skin picking disorder, mostly pick at the face. Um, you could also combine the two when you're picking hair on the face, so eyebrows and eyelashes. Um, hoarding disorder is also related hoarding is a behavioral pattern of excessive acquisition um, of things and inability or unwillingness to get rid of the things um, to acquire lots of objects and they cover every surface of your living situation Um, these people sometimes have like tunnels or just paths in their house everything else is um, stacked up around them and this is obviously a big problem you can't clean around all this stuff so they have a lot of problem living in poor conditions, Um, rat and bug infestations as well. Um, This affects two to 5% of adults. Uh, So there's more hoarding than OCD. And the onset is usually childhood and it gets worse with with increasing age or if there's like a significant event, so a loss of a loved one or something, usually the person tries to fill the space with objects uh, that they feel like they're missing something. Body dysmorphic disorder is also related. Um, This is an obsessive idea that some aspect of your body or appearance is severely flawed. And so that warrants some exceptional measures to hide it or fix it. So um, we're all familiar with people who have this um, addiction to plastic surgery. Uh, They had body dysmorphic disorder. They think that something is wrong with them, so they're constantly trying to fix it, but it's very unreasonable. Um, It affects 1% to 2.5% of the population. It shares features with OCD, but there's more depression and social avoidance for the bi-dysmorphic disorder. So related, um, but not the same thing. So those who do have obsessive-compulsive disorder have some associated cognitive deficits. Uh, they'll have some spatial memory problems, verbal memory, verbal fluency, executive function, a processing speed. So when you look at their neuropsychological testing, can kind of keep an eye out for these areas. So now I'll we'll move on to the neuroanatomy. A uh, of compulsive disorder tends to affect three main regions. So the first is the orbital frontal cortex. That's way up here in the front, bottom part of the frontal cortex. And this part of the brain is it's responsible for reward processing. It basically evaluates your situation, if a task was performed, and tells you if you did it correctly or incorrectly. So usually this part of the brain is um, overactive for those who have OCD. And so they believe that they did something wrong, and so you have to go back and fix it. Um, you usually reduce gray matter in this area, and it, then it's overact- overactive. Um, so you have poor inhibition and attentional control. So again, you don't have the ability to stop the urge uh, that you did something wrong. The cingulate gyrus, um, very important in OCD. Um, it has to do with motivation and behavioral responses. It receives input from the limbic regions, which is, of course, reward in learning. So where the orbital frontal cortex says you did something wrong, the cingulate gyrus says makes you feel discomfort or anxiety about it uh, so that you strongly care that it was done wrong. And so this, again, is overactive in people who have obsessive compulsive disorder. Also, the caudate no- nucleus um, is important for... Uh, procedural learning, associative learning, and, and, and inhibitory control of actions. It's important for set shifting, so moving from one task to another task. Um, it's also important for exerting control over compulsions and those intrusive um, thoughts, and it is obviously underactive in people who have OCD. So these three kind of uh, mile marker brain regions set up. Um, kind of goalposts for this whole network. So we talked a lot before about networks um, in the brain, and this is not phrenology, right? There's no one part of the brain, it's all talking to each other. So there is this loop here, orbital frontal cortex back to the cingulate gyrus, the striatum, which has the caudate in it, um, and then also goes to the globus pallidus, and then the thalamus, and then back up to the frontal. That is your OCD network. So there's hyperactive relative to controls in these regions. So basically you have increased activity in the head of the caudate, and the caudate usually inhibits the globus pallidus, or no, sorry. The increased activity in the head of the caudate inhibits the globus pallidus. The globus pallidus usually dampens thalamic activity. But if that's inhibited, then thalamus kind of goes crazy. So you have increased thalamic a- activity, and that increases activity in the orbital frontal cortex and cingulate gyrus. So that kind of keeps the cycle going. So the reason why it's important that thalamus is kind of going crazy is because um, the thalamus has cleaning and checking behaviors kind of hardwired in, in it. And of course, that's evolutionarily beneficial. So you need to clean yourself and your surroundings in order to you know, better pass on your genes, right? You need not live in filth. Um, you need to check and make sure that you checked your surroundings, you locked your house. These things are important you know, and uh, normal amounts. It just becomes a, a problem when it it's a, a, a rye. Anyway, so these areas are hyperactive in those who have OCD. Um, they become increasingly active when there is symptom uh, provocation. So if I show you something dirty, it will make you freak out and these regions will be overactive. However, these um, areas are no longer hyperactive after successful treatment. So you can definitely see they are overactive when there's a problem, but when... There's no symptoms, then it comes down. Okay, here's some more um, areas and images of areas that are over and underactive in OCD. So the blue areas show you underactive areas, and the red areas show you overactive areas. So you have reduced gray matter in, um, in the medial frontal gyrus, the medial orbital frontal cortex, and left insular picular region. Increased gray matter in the ventral putamen and the anterior cerebellum. See right here in this region. Um, also, if you have um, a prominent aggressive obs- uh, obsessions and checking compulsions, you'll have reduced amygdala volume. So you can see that connection between the amygdala and aggression compulsions for OCD as well. Um, there are some theories that say this is as much of an executive control problem as it is an anxiety problem. So some people categorize it as an anxiety disorder and some of them categorize it as executive function problem so here you can see a clinical OCD with overactive in the frontal so that's what they're saying is the executive control problem but there are many regions again that are um, associated with OCD so error detection in the anterior cingulate, um, memories and behavioral sequences in the hippocampus, inhibitory control in the globus pallidus, angular gyrus, compulsive checking behavior in the superior temporal gyrus, and then um, the threshold for activation of motor and behavioral patterns in the basal ganglia. Basal ganglia is really important for OCD. So I've talked about the basal ganglia a few times, mentioned there is a direct pathway and an indirect pathway. The direct pathway increases motor activity, and the indirect pathway decreases motor activity. If you want to go through all the different steps, you can then go back to my um, rounds I did specifically on the Uh, basal ganglia but for OCD uh, the direct pathway is overactive and this causes a positive feedback loop so that you kind of get stuck in these obsessive thoughts it's the uh, basal ganglia kind of theory of OCD however um, there's always two camps to every side Um, the other side says well then why don't you have kind of generalized obsessions why do you have specific ones and so the jury's still out on why you have specific obsessions and it's not general But um, there is um, evidence to support this basal ganglia theory as well. So as far as treatments, um, usually the first stop is always medications, right? Um, So the medications that are used most often are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So the presynaptic neuron releases neurotransmitter serotonin into the synapse, and it goes into the uh, synapse there. And then what they do is they block the reuptake. they release their transmitter that access usually kind of gets taken back up. Uh, but for uh, SSRIs, they block that reuptake, keep the serotonin in synapse, and it seems to alleviate some symptoms. And this works for about 40 to 60% of patients. So, you know, it's pretty good. But there's still a lot of people, almost half, who this doesn't work for. Um, you have some therapy. Uh, the most... Um, successful kind of therapy is exposure and response prevention psychotherapy. It's the only form of therapy that has been effective in multiple um, controlled trials of OCD treatments. This is basically where you expose the patients to their fear situation, and then you prevent any kind of rituals associated with it. Um, It mostly works with cleaning or checking um, rituals, And about 50% of people can have some benefit from this kind of therapy. Uh, 60 to 75% are improved or much improved, six months even after three years after treatment. Uh, But 25% showed no lasting benefit. Um, Usually the people who have poor response to this kind of behavioral therapy are those who have severe depression because they can't habituate the anxiety. Also hypomania or mania and severe family problems can impair compliance to the therapy And if you can't comply to therapy, obviously it's not gonna be as beneficial. And Also, if you have schizotypal personality disorder, you just kind of had disordered thought in general. And so it's hard for any of these kind of behavioral therapies to work. Um, More aggressive types of of treatments are surgical. So uh, you can uh, lesion the cingulate region. And um, the cingulate uh, proves symptoms believed to interrupt the loop of the anterior cingulate. Um, so they thing it's involved with the Papez circuit that I've talked about a few times. I'm showing it here again. So if you disrupt the kind of frontal input to the Papez circuit, and that's believed to mediate the anxiety and the other kind of emotional symptoms associated with OCD. You can also lesion the anterior capsule. Um, and that also interrupts frontothalamic fibers. So again, that thalamus is kind of going crazy. And this can try to mediate the obsessive and compulsive components of OCD. Um, obviously, there's also nerve feedback treatments. Um, so generally speaking, um, there are two subtypes of obsessive compulsive disorder. One is a frontal alpha dominant pattern, alpha being between 9 and 14 hertz. And the kind of standard um, treatment that is given for this is to train down alpha over the posterior cingulate, like here. Um, there's also a theta dominant pattern. Theta is 4 to 8 hertz. Um, this kind it tends to be resistant to medication. Uh, their standard protocol is to train down theta, alpha, up, and do CZ, sensory motor rhythm, training on that. Um, but obviously, here at Integrate Brain Health, uh, we don't do the standardized treatments, so we don't just rely on them alone. We look at each individual and look at their own brain and figure out how to help bring their brain to it being more effective. So we're gonna look at a few um, cases of OCD. You just kind of look at how we treated these specific individuals because treated their specific symptoms so for this person a 17 year old female uh, she was diagnosed with OCD anxiety and bulimia so here you can see the eyes closed and eyes open so usually we recommend having uh, two different versions of EEG 10 minutes eyes open 10 minutes eyes closed we then run it through an independent components analysis and these are the little dipoles that have shown up in the eyes closed and eyes open condition And these are regions of the brain that are contributing independently to the EEG data. So um, you can see here we got it along the midline here and then the occipital lobe. If you look down here, you can see number five is on the cingulate body. One is also on that cingulate. So again, we talked about how important that is for OCD. They have excessive alpha. So this compares the amount of each brain frequency to age-matched controls in this analysis. So you can see definitely excessive alpha. This is 10 to 12, a 12 to 14. 10 to 12 is on the sides. Uh, The frontal cortex and it's kind of generally frontal, midline. Lots of extra alpha there. Um, Eyes open, you have sensory motor strip here, primary motor cortex, um, and then excess alpha again, frontal, and then midline central areas. So again, over that kind of cingulate area. So for this person specifically, we train down those excesses in alpha. Um, we wanna get the front talking to the back, right? So we want the front part, this has executive function, going to kinda of be like, wait, is this a realistic fear? Is this behavior necessary? We need that to talk to the back part. So we've got it over uh, the regions that were indicated, sensory motor strip, and back in the, in the areas here too as well. So it kinda of maps on to what you see here, um, and specific for that patient. Another case, an 18-year-old female was a little bit more complex. Uh, this uh, person had anxiety, autism, OCD, intuitive thoughts, depression, focus, sensory issues, social issues, reading and speech issues. Um, also had developmental trauma and addiction tendencies. So we talked about developmental trauma for the past two weeks, so you'll see some of that coming up as well here. Uh, so this is again, eyes closed and eyes open. Dipoles indicating regions that are independently contributing to um, the EEG formation. So we have the hippocampus, bandicated, indicated the cingulate body. Um, we have premotor SMA regions, somatosensory, and then we also have Wernicke's. Um, so that could be related to the reading and speech issues here. Um, you know, this somatosensory could be related to the sensory issues. Also, depending on what kind of trauma they had, as we discussed, that might be related to that. Um, but also the premotor um, and the cingulate are related to whatever kind of ritualistic behavior they are, be, are uh, exhibiting. Eyes open, we have um, three and four, the cingulate here. Uh, middle frontal, we have kind of impulse control. Um, we have accesses in theta. So just, there's two different types. So we have access in theta in the frontal and central midline parietal. And over in the eyes open, we also have accesses in theta in the frontal and back in the parietal regions. So again, for this person, we want the front to talk to the back. So AFZ in the front to get the frontal cortex, a sensory motor strip back over PZ, which is over the precuneus area. Again, we talked to. That's really important for developmental trauma. So uh, we want to kind of get all the regions talking to each other, train down the accesses, and then reassess after they have uh, 12 to 15 sessions. Okay. So a related disorder, uh, that was just two examples of OCD. Like I said, every case is different. So uh, moving on to PANDAS, which is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Strep Infections. Um, this happens in one in 200 children. It was discovered in the 1990s. Uh, basically, a group of children had a sudden onset of OCD symptoms. So you had vocal and motor tics, counting, excessive hand washing, other ritual rituals after having strep throat. So they had the strep throat infection, and then all of a sudden, these onset of OCD symptoms. Um, they think that it causes an autoimmune inflammatory reaction in the neural tissue, specifically the basal ganglia. So remember how I mentioned how important the basal ganglia theory was. So basically the uh, virus tries to look like your own, um, nerve, your own cells, and so it hides out. And so then your antibodies go in and find it, but then it tries to identify your own cells, starts attacking your own cells. So that's uh, the autoimmune aspect. It's more common in boys than in girls. And then there, there is some kind of genetic... Um, aspect in that is more likely if the mother has an autoimmune disease. Um, the treatments are antibiotics to try to get that strep infection down, anti-inflammatories to try to reduce the inflammation um, in the brain itself, again SSRIs as are used in standard OCD, um, intravenous immunoglobin, Im- 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 and then plasmapheresis. So they cycle your blood through a machine, take out the bad plasma, put in donor plasma. Um, We did actually have a case of PANDAS, um, a 22-year-old male. Um, His symptoms were moral and contamination aspects of OCD for two and a half years, Uh, scrupulosity, which is pathological guilt or anxiety that's about moral or religious issues, obsession with numbers, especially number six, contamination fears, and restrictive eating. Okay, so for this patient's brain map, again, we see the dipoles that were produced from the independent components analysis. And we can see for its eyes closed data, we had dipoles over, um, number one is the cingulate body, um, and two and three are over the um, SMA supplementary and motor area and premotor areas. And we see excesses in theta, um, as I discussed earlier, you see that in OCD frequently over the frontal regions. There's also excesses in beta, as well over the frontal and central areas. Uh, for eyes open, we see um, a similar pattern. Um, dipoles 2, 3, and 4 over the sensory motor strip. Um, one is in the cerebellum. We also see excesses of beta uh, over the frontal regions and central uh, midline areas. And for their protocol, um, as you see here, we are inhibiting um, the areas that had excesses here. Um, And for the protocol locations, you see um, F5, so frontal regions that we're trying to get um, to talk to the posterior regions, C1 and the sensory motor strip, uh, CP5 and P1 as well correspond to those areas that were indicated. Uh, So these are regions in the parietal lobe. Um, It is a heterogeneous area. Um, as well, um, has to do with attention, uh, verbal processing. So really with this treatment protocol, we're just trying to get the frontal regions, F5, uh, to communicate well with regions in the back, uh, the parietal cortex, and sensory motor strip. Um, okay, so now I just want to move on to Tourette syndrome. Um, it is a related syndrome. So some forms of OCD are genetically linked to Tourette's. Um, tick-related OCD presents with counting, aggressive thoughts, symmetry, and some touching compulsions. Uh, some examples of motor tics are uh, blinking, coughing, throat clearing, sniffing, facial movements. There are also phonic tics, uh, coprolalia, which is the utterance of obscene words or socially inappropriate derogatory remarks. Um, while we see this a lot, portrayed a lot in movies for Tourette syndrome. Um, we don't actually see it a lot in actual Tourette syndrome. I mean, it does happen, but it's um, not a frequent um, symptom that we usually see. So for Tourette syndrome, it is highly heritable. If someone in your family has it, someone else is 10 to 100 times more likely to have it among family, family members. Uh, identical twins, uh, likely 50 to 77 percent will have it. Um, More so than fraternal twins, which has a chance of 10 to 23%. Some risk factors here for Tourette's are advanced paternal age, which is interesting. Um, For a lot of these disorders, you see um, connected to the mother's age. Uh, But for Tourette's, uh, advanced paternal age is a risk factor. Forceps delivery, stress or severe nausea during pregnancy, use of tobacco, caffeine, alcohol, or cannabis during pregnancy a premature birth or low birth weight, and also pandas. So again, you see this connection between Tourette's and pandas and obviously OCD. The prevalence is 1% of school-age children, and typically the onset is between 5 to 7 years old. Severity reaches a peak around 8 to 12 years old, and usually the severity of the tics and the symptoms decrease throughout adolescence and into adulthood. You will still see some adults who have uh, this symptoms of Tourette's, but usually it does decrease uh, for most patients. And treatments, um, so it's usually the causes of combination of genetic and environmental factors. Um, there's usually dysfunction in the neural circuits involving the basal ganglia. Um, and, it, and this is a decrease in the indirect pathway. So for OCD, we see increases in, in the direct pathway. Uh, for Tourette's, you see decreases in the indirect. So you're less... Able to inhibit unwanted movements. The treatments are usually antipsychotic drugs that inhibit dopamine because excess dopamine in the basal ganglia may contribute to the symptoms. Um, obviously, uh, neurofeedback is also a, a possible treatment, and the standard treatment is uh, SMR training, sensory motor rhythm training over CZ and theta inhibit. Um, obviously, what we like to do here at Integrate Brain Health is treat each patient as individual and look at their specific brain map. Um, but this is a standard uh, protocol that some places do use. And we'll talk more about Tourette syndrome uh, next week as well. Okay, thank you for your time. And this has been Round 24. Thanks.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Realms podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at IntegrateBrainHealth.com.